Well, good morning. If you'd grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. Big happy Mother's Day to all of you, and if I haven't personally met you and you're a guest here today, I'm so glad that you are here. We are in a book called Revelation. If you lived back then, it would, it would have this idea. It was the idea of a breakthrough. You're just kind of going along in life, and all of a sudden, a door opens or a curtain opens, and what you didn't think was there breaks through into your current reality. Think back to your own mother uh, when she had you as a child. In fact, I would love you to tell the person next to you out of the spirit of Mother's Day, where was the city that you were born? So tell someone, particularly if you don't know, I mean, if the person next to you knows you well, tell somebody in front of you or behind you, what city were you born in? I wonder how many of you uh, know what city your pastor was born in. Do you know? Not California. I was born in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You should have known that by knowing me. I was talking to my mom last night. Mom, what do you remember about the day? A lot of pain. But, yeah, but she said something I didn't know. She said, I was born on a Sunday. She was getting my uh, older sister ready for church, and all of a sudden, uh-oh, Howard's coming. I entered the world on a Sunday. Well, Philadelphia, don't get that mixed up, by the way, in Pennsylvania with the ancient city in Turkey of Philadelphia. Those of you that know a lot about the Christian story, Jesus will write a letter through his friend John to the ancient city of Philadelphia. I didn't know a lot about this city, and I want to share with you a couple of things before we read the letter about Philadelphia. Why was it named Philadelphia? which means the city of brotherly love. Well, there was a king who founded the city, King Eumenes, and he loved his brother, Attalus. Because he loved him so much, he said, I'm going to call the city, the city of brotherly love. Take a look at this picture. There's not a lot that you can find, and you'll, you'll know in a minute why. This is actually a coliseum, an area where an ancient coliseum had athletic games. The nickname for Philadelphia, and get this in your mind because it will come up later, is the Doorway of the East. They were located in an area of trade where if there was any information, it was kind of like it started there and it would get out to the world. They set culture. They were the Doorway or Gateway to the East. They were also nicknamed Little Athens. Why? Athens had temples on every corner. They had temples there to Zeus and Dionysius. But in A.D. 17, an earthquake hit the city of ancient Philadelphia and it was so severe it toppled the entire city. They, they ran around and they hoped that it would go away, but the tremors, the aftershocks, still came. In fact, the historians tell us that they didn't just hit for days, but for months and that people lived in a constant state of weakness and anxiety. Wouldn't you? I remember being in Southern California. Everybody said, if you move to California, you're going to have an earthquake. And I was like, ah, there I was in college. The earthquake hit. I found myself diving under a desk thinking to myself, is this really going to help? 
as the world was shaking and I had no control? The ancient historians tell us that in Philadelphia, cracks crisscrossed what was left of the city walls, and in every home, the walls had cracks. They lived under the shadow of dread and disaster and felt constantly weak. Every plan had an earthquake in mind. Would this be the day I'll be torn apart by the tremors? How have you coped in your life, by the way, with post-traumatic stress? Some of you actually have probably have, have that as a diagnosis. You've had such trauma. How would they cope with this post-traumatic earthquake disorder where their life, which they thought was stable, became insecure? The aftershocks created such anxiety that everyone moved outside of the city and lived in huts. How would you like to do that? Roman, the Roman uh, Caesar, Tiberius, took mercy upon this ancient city of Philadelphia and gave disaster relief. And they were so happy that they renamed the city New Caesarea. They gave the city a new name. Into this atmosphere of insecurity, Jesus writes a letter. In fact, while the other letters to these other cities had words of correction and warning, this letter he will do no correction because when your life has been shaken and you feel weak, you need an encouraging word. He will use words and images that hook into their personal history that I just told you and even ours. So, would you please stand out of honor for this ancient letter that was actually written for all the churches, even us. Revelation chapter 7, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 7, the letter begins like this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I've loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. So try those who, to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Father, we may wonder on this Mother's Day what this ancient letter has to do with us, and yet if we're honest, if the mothers here are honest, we feel of little power. We feel weak. Father, I pray that you would comfort those that have already lost their mother. Even the memories can cause a sense of joy, but also a sense of weakness. 
Father, would you please, through your Spirit, take the words off of this letter to ancient Philadelphia and move them into our hearts to encourage us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, with your Bibles open, please be seated. Doors are everywhere. In fact, if you were to follow me for a week, you would often find me in front of this door right here, the refrigerator door. I often, especially if life gets kind of shaky, I kind of get some stability by opening that door and checking out what's in there. Here's another door. Many of you take care of animals and you want them to get in and get out. And some of you love your cats. You even have cat doors. Here's another door. You know, you go out to see the bears and this fellow didn't realize that the bear wanted to open the door to get in. Sometimes we want to see the world and we don't want people into our lives. And yet... We never know what's going to happen. And lastly, just think about doors. I mean, they're everywhere. Especially when you're in a dark place, maybe when life's kind of shaky, you want there to be an opening, a, a, a way to get out of that claustrophobic, shaky situation. Maybe something outside of you would bring hope and bring encouragement. The title of uh, this talk today is simply An Open Door. Jesus, in fact, will command the readers of this letter and the hearers to look to the open door. If you're a guest today, maybe you want to follow along in your message notes. What we'll find from Jesus is that when things are really getting shaky, especially inside our hearts, you're going to feel weak and you've got to admit it. You're going to feel that you need an open door, a breakthrough into something outside of yourself. Maybe you've not experienced a geological earthquake like I did in California. But how many of us, how many of you have had a relational quake? And it's still having some serious aftershocks. Or how about a financial quake? Physical quake, anyone? Or is your health just as stable as it can be? When you feel the sense of the quake, you will feel, as Jesus says to these people, I know, you feel like you have little power. I know. Oh, Jesus knows. And He loves to call His church, when they are weak, into a mission that's bigger than their resources. I can't wait for our town hall meeting, because when we gather, we're going to talk about great dreams with very little resources. Oh, Jesus does not work with you unless you have little power. How can we who are so weak experience a settled serenity in an atmosphere of insecurity? This is the reality of this church in Philadelphia. Well, number one, the key to valuing that weakness, because you've got to embrace it, is to look to the open door of opportunity. Look at verse 7 again. Jesus says to his good friend John in this amazing vision, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, that's the one who's going to give the message, write these words, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, that means look. We've got to get our eyes on something outside of our situation. Look, I have set before you an open door, which no one's able to shut. I know that you have, but say it out loud. How much power do we have? Little, I want to hear you say that a little bit more powerfully. 
little power. All right, can we relate? I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. We are wowed in our culture by size. We think it's the mega church that's changing the world. I went to Spain last year with my wife and Sam and a little group of us to a little dinky church. That little church is changing the world. It's the little church. Oh, we just overvalue size, the size of our bank account. You go to people that have massive bank accounts. They're some of the most nervous people you'll ever meet. And by the way, you look at statistics of Christian rich people. They give the lowest amounts to the kingdom. Oh, don't think that size is going to give you significance or the size of your social contacts. Many of you that we kind of label millennial, the younger generation, you started with your thousand friends, but aren't you desperate for just one that knows you, especially when you're a little weak? Many of you that are older, by the way, that are on Facebook have kind of gotten rid of so many of these friends that just don't seem to be friends. The size of our social context, the size of our bank account. Size is significant? Really? Jesus would say, oh no, you have to look somewhere else. When you're jolted and you will in your life, you've got to look to Jesus. So many of us are running from fears. Oh, the next earthquake, the next problem. We're running from pain. You try it today. Go outside of your house and run looking backwards. You will trip over what you don't see. You won't have any fun. How many of us are running and we are looking at fear when Jesus is saying, Behold, look! Look to an open door. And the fears are there. Oh, they're real. I know we've got financial problems, relational problems, health problems, but you cannot live your life doing this. He says, Church of Philadelphia, I love you. I'm going to tell you something right now. Look to the open door. That's so important. He says, I know you're going to struggle, so let me tell you who I am. He describes himself in a threefold way. Oh, what descriptors are these? Look at the first one. He says, I am the Holy One. Holy means the most beautiful thing you will ever see in your life. My mother visited recently. She's not always been of the greatest of help. But when she got in the car and drove away, I was looking at Mom, and I just thought, she is beautiful. Now, granted, I wouldn't be here without Mom. But you might look at my mom, and some of you have, and say, what's so beautiful about her? I consider my mom utterly unique. She's the only one I've got. And she has done things for me in my life, like getting me through geometry. My mother is beautiful. He says, you've got to know who I am, because you have to look at the open door... Look at me, I'm the Holy One. I'm more beautiful than anything you've ever seen. I'm so different than anything you've ever seen. Holy One. He says, here's the second thing. Here's my descriptor. I'm the true one. True. Oh, that's so needed in our day. Have you heard this term going around that we now live in a world of fake news? Have you heard this term? Did you see the results last month that went viral from the March issue of Science Magazine? They were looking into the reality of fake news and living in a world where it shakes a bit more if you don't know who to believe, especially leaders. What they did is they analyzed 126,000 Twitter stories that took place over a 10-year period of time, and their overall finding, fake news, spreads faster than accurate news. 
Many of you are like, duh, I, I, you could have asked me that. There's something in it. If you drop a lie into a community or a half-truth, it will spread a lot quicker than just shouting out the truth. Their specific findings were three. Number one, true news rarely reached even a 1,000 users, whereas if you put something out there a little fake, it would get to 10,000 immediately. Secondly, they said a fake story is 70% more likely to be retweeted than a true one. If you hear something true, you'll rarely tell somebody else, but if it's a fake, a little bit of a lie, you're going to tell somebody. And lastly, they said... A false story will reach 1,500 people six times faster than a true one. I love how they summarize their study in Science Magazine. Crazy, stupid misinformation gets shared, and it just might have something to do with our human nature. Twitter users almost prefer sharing falsehoods. Users lunge for rumors. Lies are too seductive to not be shared thought about my own life, like the stuff I tell people. It's usually the more shaky stuff, the the stuff that, man, it almost sounds like it could be true, but I know it can't be. Is Science Magazine finding something that is true? Yes, it is. Jesus is saying, I need to get your attention. I'm going to be opening doors for you. I'm the holy one. I'm beautiful. I'm the true one. You can look my direction And you'll hear truth in a world of fake news. The only other time these two phrases, holy one, true one, are ever used in the Bible, they're used of God. Now, some of you may not agree with the Christian religion. The Christian religion is very specific. It says that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and the Son came to earth to open a door back to the Father, and God took on humanity. Jesus is saying to this church in Philadelphia, I am the Holy One. I am the True One. I am God. Revelation 6.10. Here's where it talks about God. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord. Here's the only time you'll see it in Scripture. Holy and true. Jesus Christ is God. The third descriptor. He's not just holy. He's not just true. He holds the key of David. What's that all about? Well, even our children know, knew the answers. Did you hear it today from their lips? What does the key represent? How many of you have bought a house? Oh, all that paperwork, 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 and they finally bring to you the key to the house. Why? Because the key shows that now you have full authority and you're the owner. The authority to open and shut that home Those of you that are younger, you're dying to buy that first car. Oh, you'll do the paperwork. But when that key comes out and it's in your hand, you're ready to go. Now, we have to kind of go at warp speed over 2,000 years back in time to Isaiah the prophet who brings up a weird guy named Eliakim. Here's the short story, and we read it to prepare our hearts for confession. The temple, you couldn't just go into the temple in Jerusalem. And you even couldn't go into Jerusalem through the gates. So they would grab a guy that was kind of like the chief of staff in our America idea. Someone who had control to let people in from other nations and people in not just through the gates but into the temple. Eliakim was given this key. And Eliakim was like a lot of people in the Old Testament. They were what they're called pre-pictures or types of the coming Messiah. 
So when Jesus says, tell Philadelphia in the letter that I am the one who is like Eliakim, I give access to the temple, to the very presence of God, and I have complete control with that key. Complete control. Remember before Jesus ascended and he went through the curtain into the heavenly realm? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. By the way, that's why we gather on the Lord's Day. Because this is the day that He resurrected and that little door, that stone that tried to keep Him in, not with Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth. He has the key. He is the greater Eliakim, if you will. He is the actual blood descendant of King David. He is so more holy and He's absolutely true. He has the key. He came by His incarnation, by His death and resurrection. He came to access for us the very life of God. And some of you go, oh, okay, who cares? Access, not to a car that gets old, access. Not to a, a home that you're going to have to refinance that loan and sell someday. He gives you access to the very life of God. Whether you know it or not, you deeply want access into community. Oh, it's deep. One of my favorite Christian theologians and philosophers, James K.A. Smith, cited a research project recently in his magazine, Comment Magazine, where scientists did something a little bit rude. They took a group of people and they played a little game of catch to just learn about how we act as human beings. They tossed the ball in this group of people to each other, but there was one condition, unbeknownst to her, one member never had the ball thrown her way. She was patient at first. She smiled when others smiled. She kept hoping that she would have that ball tossed to her and that she could enter the game. But it never did. She would pretend she didn't want to play, but she'd finally give up. They did this with group after group. And they took the findings of that poor outsider, the one who didn't get to go through the door. And these were the words that those that on the outside stated. It wasn't for them just a game. They said, we felt utterly meaningless, purposeless, and powerless. Whether you know it or not, we deeply want access into community. And Jesus comes with that key. Take a look again at this image of this open door. This is the main command of Jesus. He says, look, get your eyes off of the fear and try to run, run away from it. Look to the open door. What does the door mean, though? That's a metaphor. What does the door mean? Well, it was used over and over by Jesus and the early Christians to talk about the message of the good news of Jesus. Let's read together what Paul wrote in Colossians 4.3. Read this with me if you're able to see this. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Okay, get this. Paul is stuck in prison, no access. And he says, oh, you've got to pray. Not so much that a prison door comes open. You can read in the book of Acts, there were earthquakes and God can open a prison door without any problem. What he was saying was, we need to pray 
for an opening, not just for the good news of the kingdom, but for the Word, this story, this mystery of Christ who came to save us to advance that story. An open door means an opportunity for the success of the spread of the saving message of Jesus. What Jesus is saying to this little church, forge ahead, you've got an open door. You're not just a trading route where people are going to come through. You can give these people this story and they'll take it out to the planet. What an open door. New open hearts, new places, all with the power of the gospel. Metro North Church, do you have any idea what kind of open doors are everywhere in our city, in our community? We are living in such a unique time. You know, we've seen the absolute collapse of what's called secularism. That means... All that there is is what I see. There is no spiritual reality. Everyone you know knows deep in their gut there's more than what we can experience with our five senses, like love, for instance. With a collapse of materialism, which says, I'll make a lot of money and I'll get stuff and that's what will give me significance. That has collapsed in our country. Oh, people are still trying to get the money, but they know in their gut that money is a constant shaking, quaking, aftershock event. We have a doors of opportunity because everyone everywhere is looking for a stable story, and the story of Jesus is absolutely stable. I sat last Sunday, Saturday night uh, at the Avengers Infinity movie. 160 minutes. It's hard enough for most of you to sit through a 30-minute sermon. But our culture sat for 160 minutes, and when it ended, what these movies do is they give a post-credit little story. The entire, I mean, not, not just half, the entire group that just sat through 160 minutes, and previews, by the way, waited through the credits so that we could see a little teeny next part of the story. Why? It's an open door. Our culture wants to know that there is a story bigger than their story. They're not going to find it, by the way, in the Avengers. But we have an opportunity. Oh, let's look around. Jesus is holy. Jesus is true. And He says you have to value your weakness. He gives us a second thing. He's trying to really give us an incentive. You ready for the second one? The key to valuing weakness is to look at the love. That's that unseen spiritual thing that our culture wants. Look at the love of Jesus. Look at verse 9. Behold, that means look, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan and who say that they're Jews and they're not, but lie. Look, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. We were praying as a church on Wednesday. By the way, thank you for coming out and praying as a church. I sat across from Annie, and we just prayed. And Annie was wearing a locket. And I said, Annie, let me see what that locket says. and Let me read it to you. I don't know if you can read the writing. By the way, Jim, if you don't know Jim and Annie, they've been married a few years. On Annie's 80th birthday, Jim gave her this locket. Here's what he said to his wife. Annie, I loved you then. I love you still. I always have. I always will. Now you might think that's so sentimental. You're such a romantic, Jim. Who in this room right now wouldn't want even another human being looking at you and saying, I've always loved you. 
I always will. This is the deepest, deepest desire to be united with someone that loves us and cares for us. And Jesus is saying, I know we live in a world that tries to live apart from my love, but I've loved you. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. I've always loved you. Now, we need to understand that supernatural love is very unique. Natural love looks at a person and asks, is there something worth loving in that person? That is not supernatural love. That is not the love that God gives us. God looks at us while we are sinners and unlovely, and He says, I love you. I've always loved you. But I'm unlovely. There's nothing in me that's worthy. I know. This is the kind of love. So what is Jesus saying when He talks about these Jews that are in this synagogue of Satan? Let me give you a little bit of a backstory. Jesus is not anti-Jewish because He ends up calling these Jewish people liars. If you're not into Christianity, we follow Jesus who has the audacity to look someone in the face as the true one and say, you're lying about reality. Who were these Jews? The Jewish people of which Jesus was Himself, born a Jew, were waiting for a Messiah, a King, who would love them with supernatural love, even when they weren't worthy. Jesus shows up, you can read about this in the biographies and in the book of Acts, and most of those Jews said, wait a minute, you are trying to say that we don't have to bring our good works and our worth to God? That you're bringing your worth and your good work to us? We don't want that story. And Jesus said, that's the only story that's going to make sense. If you're not, you're with Satan. Satan opposes my story. See, the Jews in that day thought, I will create my own dignity so that I will be worthy in front of God. And Jesus arrived and said, stop pretending. Stop lying to yourself. He would break their false reputation because he, he knows that all of us that live under a false reputation of being so holy, it's tiring. Jesus loves us enough and He loved these Jews enough. And by the, what, what He said to these Jews was this. What he, said, what he said to the Philadelphians is He says, I am so going to love even these Jews that oppose my story that they're going to get my story and they're going to bow the knee to me and they are going to enter into my story and even they will know as they look at you and they're going to learn something by looking at you that I have always, as Jim said to Annie, I've always loved you. Do people that are not into Christianity and they know that you're a Christian, is that the main thing they know about you? That you've always been loved, even in your unlovable state, by Jesus. He says this is a key. The key to valuing weakness is to look to the love that I give you. Jesus was not anti-Jewish. He was not anti-Semitic. He was absolutely pro-Jewish because the Jews were supposed to be waiting for the Messiah. And it was the true Jew spiritually that accepted that Jesus brought salvation. I've always loved you. Now, Jesus loved them, past tense, by dying for their sin and rising again for their justification. He, remember, was locked up forsaken outside of, uh, of a relationship with the Father so that we as sinners would be let in. Jesus continues to say, okay, it's one thing to hear that I love you, but listen to these commitments. Listen to these commitments. 
He says, commitment number one, I will keep you or protect you. Look at verse 10. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Have you ever had an hour of trial? Think back in your life. It was a real, real rough spot. Traumatic. Maybe you've had a call that a loved one has cancer. Maybe you've had a call that a loved one has died from cancer that you did not want to lose. Maybe you've had months of underemployment or unemployment. I remember when my father was unemployed. It was very difficult for him. Maybe you have a child with an addiction. Maybe you have an unanswered prayer. When was this hour of trial for the Philadelphia Christians? We don't know. But we know it would be an hour. It would be short. There's a lot of numbers in this book. Three and a half days, 42 months, a thousand years. I know you. You're only going to have an hour. I love you and I want you to know that you're going to be kept. You're going to be totally protected. Oh, it'll be an earthquake. It'll be brief trauma. The tide waters of tribulation will rise. And you need to know this. If you're on the edge of Christianity and you want to step in, you've got to know this from the beginning. Christianity will not keep you suffering free. It's not a pleasure religion. Jesus does not save us from disasters. He saves us in our disasters. We will have an hour of trial, but He will keep us. He says, I love you. Here's a second commitment. Look, look at this door. Walk through the door. Listen, listen, I want to strengthen you when you're weak. Second commitment. It's a commitment of love. I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. I think of teenagers who say, there's no food left in this house. They're texting mom. Mom, where is the food? Coming home from Walmart. I'll be there soon. If you know there's something coming soon, it gives you a sense of hope. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have that no one may seize your crown. Crown. We've got to enter back into that old Philadelphia. Remember, the only thing I could find because the earthquakes took everything down was a coliseum, was a place where you would have athletic games. Remember that they had this place. Only the victor would get the crown. He says, I'm coming. Hold on. Hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. Take a look at Michael Phelps. Remember in the Athens games, because he was the best, he got the crown. He says, I love you. You're going to have the crown. I love you. I'm coming soon. Hold fast. There are only two commands for this church, because he's mainly comforting you. And you don't need somebody getting up in your grill when you're going through a hard time giving commands. He simply says twice, look, look, there's a door. And here's the other, only other command. Hold on. Hold fast. Do a little imagination, imaginary experiment with me. You got mom. She's got a phone, one percent battery. She's been working hard all day running that family. You got a big strong man. He's got a phone, one percent battery. But the man keeps maneuvering the phone, dimming it a little, putting it on extra. You know that power save mode. But the mom is going strong using the phone, one percent, one percent. Here's the difference. As this man, in his own strength, starts to lose the phone, what the mom does is she takes 
the power cord and plugs it in. Hold fast what you have. You have an outside source of power when you're weak. Oh, mothers. You're all, in fact, I think mothers pretty much run when the battery goes dead and the phone's like coming back on, you know? This is the promise of my love. Hold fast. I'm coming soon. The key is not your strength. It's not your battery. It's the outside power source. Hold fast. Jesus says you're not okay because of your potential or your power, but because of my promises. And this is the last thing he says. The key to valuing weakness is to look to the open door, look to the love of Jesus in the past and the present, but what about our future? Okay, I'm going to stop running and looking at fear. I'm going to look to Jesus in the open door, but I still am fearful. I promise, he says to you. Listen to this. This is the last thing. The key to valuing weakness is to look to what Jesus promises to make of you. The holy, true God, when you get into His presence, has every right to unmake you for your sin and imperfection. But He does not do that with sinners who trust Him, who tear themselves away from God. He gives us promises. Here's His first one. Look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God Never shall he go out of it. A pillar. You've got to go back to the ancient story. In fact, when you go back to that history time, they have stories that the only thing that remained standing in Philadelphia in AD 17 were the pillars of the temple. Jesus says, you've got to look at something. I'm going to be making something out of you. You're going to be a pillar. The pillar, that's the load-bearing beam for the structure. Yeah, the pillar. That's what I'm going to make out of you. The pillar's stable. It's permanent. Yeah, that's what I'm going to make out of you. Jesus, are you promising stability in the shaky situations? Yes! Where is the pillar going to be? In the temple of God. The temple is where God is. Oh, how many of us think we want the key to the house of the Father, but we really deep down know that we want more of the Father. Well, how long will I be in the presence of God? Because I'm a Philadelphian. That the city shook, I had to leave the temple and make a hut. Oh, I'll tell you how long you're going to be in this temple. You will never have to leave. Never! Sometimes? No, never! You'll never have to leave my presence. But everyone left. We lived in huts. Not you. You will be with me. You will be with my son. You will be in, the, in my home forever. And it gets even better. Jesus puts it on thick in verse 12. I'm going to give you a triple name. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven in my own new name. Look at this picture of some ancient pillars from a nearby city in A.D. 17. They still stand. There are inscriptions from people that paid a lot of money to have their name on a pillar. They paid money to have their name on the pillar. Jesus says, I will make of you a pillar and you are not going to be a rich person paying for your glory forever. He says, I'm going to give you a triple name. I'm going to write on you a triple name. I don't know if these are going to be tattoos. I don't know if they're going to be clothing that have names. But when we see each other, if we trust God, we are triple named and they're all for free. Here's the first one. You will have on you the name of my God. Some of you know that when the second temple was built, or the first temple was built of Solomon, 
Solomon put two pillars. And he put two names of God on the pillars. Some of you know this, but those of you that don't, one of the names of the pillars in that original temple was the name God establishes. God looks at you when you're like, I'm weak. (laughs) I'm running from my fears and I'm fumbling. He says, I'm going to make of you a pillar and I'm going to write on there, God establishes. Solomon had a second pillar in his temple. It was this, name of God. In him is strength. My name doesn't have to be in Howard is strength. No. The name, you're going to be named with the name of God. He establishes in Him is strength. He says, just to really get you excited about what I'm going to make out of you, there's a second name. I'm going to call you the New Jerusalem. Oh, I know that you guys were happy that you got disaster relief and you honored Tiberius by calling it the New Caesar. Not with me. I've named this city the city I'm going to bring to earth and you are named a citizen. That's what I'm going to make of you. You're never going to be in that game where you don't get the ball. You're in. And just to make sure you're awake, I'm going to give you the new name of Jesus. Next time you have a little tip with somebody in this church or somebody in your family, look at them tattooed with the triple name of God and see them with the glory of a pillar that is permanent and stable. Might just make you treat them a little differently. Might just make you do what Jim did for his wife for her 80th birthday and to bejewel her with words of love because he knows exactly what's being made of his dear wife. Have you looked to and through this door? I know you're like me. You, you resinned this week. You relapsed this week. You redestroyed so much. And yet Jesus says, come home. Come home. I end with a, a, a movie I saw back in 2013 called Gravity. I don't know if you've seen it. It had one of the most haunting things. In the riveting 2013 film Gravity, Dr. Ryan Stone played played brilliantly by Sandra Bullock as an astronaut. Uh, She was on a spacewalk out in space, outside the space shuttle Explorer, when high debris from a satellite that had been destroyed strikes the Explorer and detaches her and sends her spinning off alone in space. Here's a picture of it right here. I remember seeing this in 2013 and my gut just dropped. I thought, what if this happened to me? I couldn't deal with it. No relationships, all the people that she had known. It's heartbreaking. It's a haunting scene. She's destabilized. She cries out in her weakness. Oh, she's honest. Explore, do you copy? Silence. Houston, do you copy? More silence. Houston, this is Mission Specialist Stone. I'm off structure. I am off structure. I am drifting. Do you copy? No response. As she spins off into space, she continues to call for help. Anyone? Anybody? Do you copy? Please copy, please. But then, in her weakness, she sees this. A door. Now, who would have known that a Chinese space station would be floating by? But she's got to look to the door. 
She cannot look back at what is wrong. She must look to the open door. Oh, she'll enter that door of the capsule, eject from the space station, drop to earth, land in a lake, and as it's filling, she will open that door, swim to shore, and one of the most beautiful scenes, oh, she's weak. Like a mother who's raised children. She's weak. But she gets to shore and she stands up in her weakness. Grounded. Guaranteed life. The key to valuing weakness is to look for the open door. Look to His love. And look at what He promises to make of you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You that Your Spirit can take a story to a a city of brotherly love and make it as alive today. How do you do that, Lord? Father, I pray especially for those that are, are quaking. It's not an aftershock. They're in the middle of it. And they've come to church today to hear good news. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Father, for your Son who has come. Thank you that He was shut out so that we would be let in. And Lord, comfort us. We know that you're near to the brokenhearted. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.